This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about this episode include... Playing versus being entertained. Fudging die rolls. The Ballad of Rob Ford. And Jack the Ripper. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. As we begin uh, the new year of 2013, uh, we begin as we mean to continue with gaming, and specifically with the Gaming Hut. So let's uh, open it up and air it out after its brief uh, Christmas holiday, uh, chase down some Cheeto crumbs, and see what Robin has in terms of the two different player motivations. Obviously, Robin's laws of good game mastering have broken them down even further, but we will take, I think, more of a bird's-eye view here on the two basic motivations. Robin, what are those two basic motivations? Uh, yeah, so you mentioned uh, Robin's laws of good uh, game mastering, and I've been asked on occasion uh, what a guide for uh, best player practices might be. And that is an interesting question because we are very used to uh, giving a lot of advice to GMs, but uh, very little uh, play style advice uh, gets through to players. And uh, you may have little sidebars and stuff packaged as part of uh, a rule set. Um, but even those are things that we expect the GM to convey uh, to the players as sort of tips on how to adjust their style for whatever particular game it is. Uh, but if you were to imagine a uh, advice book for players, the first thing that I would uh, suggest before, you know, breaking down what the different types of GM are and how to best tailor your play to the different types of GM, which of course would be a, a 180 from uh, Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering, I would uh, urge people to think about the basic dichotomy of showing up to play versus showing up to be entertained. And that sort of comes down to the question of how... Uh, Actively, are you going to take charge of whether you have fun or not? And how much are you going to take something and put it out there for the other participants, uh, the other players as well as the GM, to uh, latch on to? Um, because often in the sort of traditional uh, mode of role-playing that comes out of the D&D tradition, we are used to a sort of a very demarcated role between uh, the DM, who is sort of there to uh, supply the entertainment and the pacing and to create a situation, and the players who are there basically to respond to it in some way, to crack the puzzles, to kill the monsters, to find the stuff. And uh, this can encourage a style of play that is uh, reactive, that expects, uh, you know, your desired form of fun, whatever that is, depending on what gamer type you are, whether you're looking for exploration or interaction or puzzles to solve or butts to kick. Um, and if you're not careful, you can get into a rut where you're uh, getting less out of the game because you're 
putting less into it. And if you think of yourself instead of, what am I going to bring to the table tonight, uh, giving a little bit of advanced thought the way that the GM has to give advanced thought to um, most role-playing game sessions, the question then becomes, uh, what do you do so that you're showing up to play, so that you're bringing something uh, for other people to play with, rather than just showing up and expecting a as a passive version of what is really a uh, interactive experience. So you would say then showing up to play is the desideratum that everyone should aim for, and that ideally, unless you know we're really really tired, uh, we shouldn't just show up to be entertained. Which I think, in a couple of ways, I mean, first of all, it, it just it, it sounds like a, a beautiful dream, but impractical given the reality of, of you know, the, the, the reasons people show up to, to game. Uh, and a lot of it is just to sort of not have to think about stuff, to just sort of swing a sword, hit an orc, or, you know, uh, listen to the GM talk about spaceships or whatever it happens to be, that, they're, that, that they are, you know, seeking, uh, I don't want to say passive entertainment, but more passive forms of interactive entertainment. It, they don't want, you know, necessarily just want to watch a movie, but they also don't want to be doing a lot of, you know, homework or research to what is basically, you know, beer and pretzels night, any more than they do homework or research uh, to show up for poker night or Settlers of Catan night. Well, I think the, the first of a couple of things I would say to that are, uh, first of all, that's all well and good as long as you are being entertained, as long as everyone is comfortable uh, with their varying levels of participation and commitment and having a good time playing. Uh, but as soon as things start to go awry, as soon as you're uh, desire for whatever form of uh, semi-interactive entertainment is not being met, as soon as you become dissatisfied with the proceedings, the question then becomes, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to sort of kind of check out and uh, not let the GM know that you're uh, not really engaged, but not really take steps to address that? Or are you, is there something that you can do, even like you know, five minutes of thought on the uh, on the bus on the way to uh, the GM's house to be more active and, and aggressive about making the game what it is that you want. And another part of that is that uh, traditionally there is a huge uh, work differential that we impose on the GM versus the players, and that can lead to burnout on the part of the the GM. And there is a uh, a fundamental question of how, uh, with any hobby, you get out of it what you're willing to put into it. And role-playing is not uh, watching television. And so uh, I would suggest that uh, when things start to go awry, you can start asking yourself as a player, just as the GM would be asking yourself, what it is, what can I do to make this more fun for me? And uh, hopefully by extension for everybody else. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously, you uh, in the ideal world, you want everyone to be a constantly uh, present, uh, constantly involved, constantly sensitive to their own fun, sensitive to the fun of the other people at the table, uh, trying to, you know, cut the GM a little slack, you know, sort of uh, uh, turn into the curve if you expect something fun is going to happen in the next little bit. Uh, th these are the sort of, you know, sort of... Uh, I don't want to say baseline, but they're the sort of goals that we all shoot for. But I think that a lot of gaming takes place away from that ideal and that we run the risk when we start saying things like, you know, show up to play, put in some thought, bring your, 
bring your A game, you know, uh, have a have a tactic or a goal or a, or a or a little speech or whatever, you know, thought out something that you want to bring to the table. I, I think you run the risk of then discouraging people who really are either there because. They are there, you know, like, uh, you know, the, 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 one of the player's, uh, boyfriend, or they're one of the people who is mostly just there for the social aspect of it, or it's in their living room and they play because of that, or some other aspect. And I think that we need to make sure that there is a place that the GM needs to make sure and the other players need to make sure that there's a place for that kind of player as well, that they are not feeling like, you know, I could watch the extended edition Lord of the Rings and get more fun out of my day than this. Right, and what you're describing in, in the Robin Laws player breakdown is the casual player. Right, And yeah. the instruction to the GM about the casual player is let the casual player be the casual player. But the casual player, I think, by the uh, nature of their uh, engagement... Uh, may not be putting a lot into it, but conversely, their expectations of what they're going to get out of it are not necessarily that high either, and they sort of take care of themselves. And uh, if we want to sort of think of ourselves as addressing this advice to these sorts of people who want to take it, i.e. the cream of the gamer crop who listen on a regular basis to this enthralling podcast, uh, we can sort of find some uh, practical suggestions for uh, bringing more to the table if you want to do that. And that, because in the, uh, in the ideal realm, yes, of course, you want everybody showing up to play instead of showing up to be entertained. In the less than ideal reality, even one or two players who decide to show up to play, who decide to help guide the experience and to help make things happen, can really improve the game uh, experience for everybody, make it more entertaining for those who merely show up to be entertained. So I thought maybe we could riff on some things that if you want to, as a player, be more uh, proactive, uh, that you can do that don't uh, disrupt what the GM is trying to lay down, but to, to feed into that. Yeah, I, I think that certainly when you cast it that way, that's that's a worthwhile thing. And I would say just, you know, to start it off as, a, as you know, in my gaming, what I look for is players who engage both with the setting and ideally with another player character, right? That they are they're hooking their story or their experience into some aspect of the world that I control, and they're also bringing in another player to be part of their story, ideally in a ally or friendly rival type context, not in PvP play, which is, unless you're really good at it or everyone's really good friends, it turns you know, remarkably toxic, remarkably rapidly. But I, I think that that, as a GM, is, is the things that I like. If they look for a part, it, and it doesn't even matter what part, it doesn't even matter if it's a part that I have, you know, super uh, emphasized, I almost prefer them to look for uh, pieces of chrome or pieces of, of backstory that I tossed off, because it makes me think, it, it, it surprises me, and that's why I'm playing, as opposed to, you know, writing a, a, a story or something. And when you're creating a character at the outset of a session, uh, or sorry, the outset of a campaign, the thought that I think is really useful is to try and identify uh, what the premise is. Uh, the GM may be very clear about that, or it may not uh, be evident, or just may not be sort of getting through the communication screen, but to try and figure out what it is that the GM is embarking on, and then ask yourself, what's the most interesting active character I can do create that actually furthers and engages with that premise. So that can be 
you know, at the simplest level, that is, you know, this is a horror game. So why am I creating a, a guy who is getting into horror movie situations? What is his uh, strong, active goal that actually fits what is going on with the campaign rather than is a sideline to it? And so that you want to sort of test what it is that you're bringing for everybody else to play with so that it's something that furthers the plot and it furthers what seems to be the premise that's in play. So if you are in a high fantasy game and then you decide, well, I would like to become a pig farmer on the side, that is throwing something out there. But then the next question that you want to do is ask yourself, how does my pig ranching, how is it going to dovetail with the apparent intent to have a big epic fantasy that, uh, takes the characters across a continent yeah unless it's a you know you're going out hunting for magical breeds of pig or something and it becomes sort of a hilarious leitmotif of your character or if your gm has read a lot of william hope hodgson it, it gives them an, ex an excuse to do a lot of uh really cool uh demons then yeah i think in a high fantasy campaign it, or a horror campaign i think a lot of the goal as a player is to look look for what the tone of the game is and as well as what the core activity is going to be so even if you could assume that you're, you know, hunting the, the land for various exotic uh, pigs, it still could go against tone if the, if the GM has wanted something more sonorous and Tolkienian or more gritty and um, uh, Game of Thronesy, y uh, either way, rather than a hilarious, picaresque romp. Right. So that if you find out that if he's going for grittying Games of Thronesy, your thing to do is, you know, what's the most interesting active guy I can create who's going to be involved in political intrigue? And what is it that drives him or her to engage in that central action of, of the game? And I guess this comes down to a general thing about the success or failure of role-playing games is that the clearer the core activity of the campaign is, the easier it is for people who do want to play, who do want to come to the table and put things out there for other people to grab onto, you have to, as a, a GM or a game designer, make that clear to people what that core activity is going to be. Um, and the other thing is to be very attentive to what other people are uh, putting out there. So as you suggest, uh, listening to what other people are proposing as their character hooks and trying to find a way to hook into that and build onto that. And so, you know, if you decide that your character believes himself to be the recipient of a uh, lost royal lineage in a game that you know is going to be sort of a big epic Tolkien campaign, you might uh, decide that uh, obviously this dwarf character that uh, uh, Susie sitting next to you has created uh, must be the uh, reincarnation of the great uh, dwarven prophet that led your ancestors to uh, their original kingdom and success. And that gives Susie different options of how to respond to that. Uh, she can decide that that's nuts and you can have fun banter as you uh, uh, are in conflict about that. Or uh, Susie can pick up and, and yes, and that idea and say that, you know, well, I've been having weird dreams ever since childhood. Well, maybe I, I am the reincarnation of this, this character. So you're not locking the other players into a particular conception. You're not extended your creative control over them, but you're, you know, laying out uh, chips for them to pick up and do something with. And preferably, if you can envision them as chips that allow them to respond in at least a couple of different ways, that gives them the the, the freedom to do that. And, and another thing that you can do that is 
remarkably contributory and does not take a ton of work on your part is to, you know, see if the GM has anything that they want to do that you can sort of plug into or conversely offer yourself as a universal joint. One of my, one of my very best players who's in my game now, uh, uh, Josh, it showed up to the Unknown Armies game and said, uh, can I play a guy who's under his grandfather's blood curse but doesn't know it? And at an Unknown Armies game, that is like, you know, that's like bringing pizza, as far as I'm concerned. And that was, it, it set up some phenomenal stories. It made me think about uh, the backstory of his character and the backstory of, of, of the mystical Chicago underground in my world, because that took it, you know, two generations back. It set up all kinds of really great play, and it tied into the sort of overall overarching uh, true kingness of the of the fundamental campaign. It was a really strong bring, and he didn't have to do a ton of work for it, except to say, "Yes, I understand that in an unknown armies game, this is going to be remarkably like uh, volunteering to be first into the rat pit." And then beyond character generation, uh, as you uh, head to each uh, session on the way there, you can just ask yourself, "What is it that?" my character is going to want to do at the outset. Because often you have a period at the beginning of a game session where the you sort of all kind of stumble to remember what it was that happened the last time you met, and you kind of, uh, you wind up with a really soft sort of fuzzy start. So if you, uh, first of all, review that in your uh, head, first of all, so you have it kind of clear, and then come to, well, what does my character want to do now that furthers the big, goal that I established for him? What moment do I want to maybe kind of work toward? Now, that doesn't mean that you're in an improvised interactive uh, setting are going to get to do exactly that. But simply by having something strong to propose at the beginning of a session, assuming it isn't a cliffhanger, you're going to do everybody at the table an enormous favor. And yes, you're going to get a little extra spotlight and attention for that, but it will be... uh, worth it for the other players in the GM because they're going to hit a running start. Or if you know something that you're working toward, or just envisioning, you know, where does my character want to be at the end of this investigation or at the end of this adventure? What is it that they uh, want and how am I going to get it? Or just envision a, a, a scene that you might want to sort of steer things toward as long as you don't lock too much into that and expect that scene to play out exactly as you envisioned it. And I I think the term that you used earlier, a bring, is a really great one. So what can you bring to the table for everybody else to feed on? What are the game munchies in addition to the Cheetos or chips or whatever it is that you're bringing that everybody can chew on to make the uh, game experience uh, more rewarding and fun? Yeah, uh, and and, and it can be... You know something, something big like uh, you know. Uh, I think when we get to this planet, we should do X, or it can be something little where it's like I haven't used my um, lock picking skill in forever. I want to you know pick a lock. I want to set myself up to be a subterfuge lock picking guy today. You know, normally I've been you know my rogue has been backstabbing too much, and I want to I want to con somebody. Just have a little moment that you want to do, and then assuming that the you know if, if you you're not going to do a lot of you know, uh, long cons if you're in a dungeon, but if you're in an urban adventure, you can sort of signal that to the GM. You can say, uh, I'd like to, you know, uh, given that we all know we want to get uh, into the high priest's uh, treasure house, I want to start long conning one of the under priests and, and set it up. And then you can have that little spotlight time that you've bought. And then the GM, you know, is thankful that the players have got the beginnings of a plan to get to where they want to go. Uh, structurally. So just as you should bring an apple for the teacher, uh, you should bring 
an idea or thought or action uh, to your role-playing sessions, and you will find that uh, even if you were initially showing up to be entertained, that you, by showing up to play, by bringing something to play with, uh, it will be more rewarding for you and for uh, everyone else. And uh, I think that brings us to the uh, end of our Gaming Hut segment, and we'll move us on to our next one. segment is the uh, famed Ask Ken and Robin segment. Uh, this time, Paul Weimer asks about the tyranny of die roll results. When is it okay for the GM to fudge a result? Ken, are you a fudger? It depends on the game. It depends on the game contract that uh, goes uh, game by game, and it depends on the genre. Uh, having cut the majority of my GMing teeth on Call of Cthulhu, I can tell you that I am uh, instinctively a fudger because uh, if in CFC, if you do nothing, the characters die, and so the GM must uh, sort of always uh, have at least a potential thumb on the scale to make sure that the Deep One somehow didn't see you in the darkness, or that the Trident missed your kidney and only uh, crippled you, or whatever it happens to be. Um, I, I had a, 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 a very early in my Call of Cthulhu career, my one of my players said, Ken, as a as a believing uh, Christian, don't you think that running the Cthulhu mythos is somehow, you know, against what you believe? And one of the other players said to him, our characters are still alive. What more evidence of a benevolent, loving God do you need? Oh, I did not know you were a secret Durlethian. <laughs> yes, it was very Durlethian of me, but it, it kept the game going, which is what I wanted to do. Right. But in, a, in another game, in a game that is either predicated more on stark horror, like uh, later Call of Cthulhu games that I've run, or that is predicated on you know, sort of a, a fundamental realism of, 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 of impact, uh, I, I, I tend not to fudge. Or in a game that is, a, a game that I don't really have an, 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 a live-or-die investment in because I, I feel like the, the, the universe is strong enough to withstand the death of a character, something like Ars Magica, where everyone's got three characters already, so if I kill one, it, it doesn't matter so much. I don't fudge. I, I One would think that I would be a, a devoted fudger as well, given my... Uh, ideology of the game master being there to facilitate uh, maximum uh, sweet spot communal pleasure for everyone. But in practice, I tend to uh, more uh, manipulate the situation than to roll a, a die and then go, oh, I didn't mean for that die roll to occur because that introduced a potential for danger that in retrospect I see is damaging to everyone's fun. And so... Uh, I very rarely or perhaps even never actually disregard a die roll. Now, it helps that, uh, oddly enough, my die rolling defies the statistical odds and that I tend to roll very poorly for the bad guys. And the mere presence of uh, this unscientific probability field is a big advantage for my players. Uh, but that I sort of feel that the uh, rule set is there to demarcate uh, whatever the contract is between the players, we've agreed that we're playing uh, this very deadly game, or we've agreed that we're playing uh, this very forgiving uh, game. And that within those uh, precincts, that uh, if a die roll occurs, I'm just going to uh, go with that, even though the results uh, may be uh, nasty. Now, that doesn't mean I'm very careful not to stack the deck against people. Uh, 
except possibly accidentally by, you know, giving them more monster than they can uh, reasonably expect to be able to handle. Or uh, so I will, if things are going very badly in a fight, I will try to give them an out, which is that, you know, for some reason, uh, something happens that allows the, the players to uh, drag off the corpses and escape or the, you know, the creatures are not interested in pursuing them if they try to escape or, you know, even a hoary old rescue uh, can work if you then make sure that there's some other negative consequence to, to being rescued. But, and maybe it's just because I'm usually playtesting either a set of rules that I've designed or I'm learning a set of rules in order to do supplementary material for it. I sort of feel that I uh, need to come to grips with that, uh, the way that actual players will in the field, which brings up the interesting question, uh, if everybody fudges, how real is any playtesting experience of how deadly a rule system is if you play it as written and respect all of the die rolls? Well, I think, I think you pretty much have to assume when you're writing or playtesting that, you know, the that people are going to use the rule set because otherwise, you know, anarchy lies there. And we all know instinctively that people will, you know, even with the best will in the world, they'll forget a given rule or they won't apply it consistently or they'll, you know, underbuild the, the vampire, or they'll overbuild the ninja or whatever it is. And so there's always going to be some wiggle room, you know, once, you know, no, no rule set survives contact with the players to paraphrase Clausewitz. Right. And, and most people, most GMs err on the side of being too tough and, mm -hmm. and being too hard on, on the players. And in, a, in many games, that is, that, that that's what the, you know, the, the gaming contract is, is that, uh, you know, the GM is the is the ogres and the bugbears and the beholders and the mind flares and all the awesome stuff that exists to kill you in sordid and, and god-awful ways. And you, the players, have nothing but your mithril chain mail and your plus one long sword to keep you alive. And, and that's sort of the, that cut and thrust quality is what they're there for. And those kind of players would be, you know, angry if they found out that their GM was fudging the rolls to keep them alive, even if in the heat of the play they might appreciate it. Yeah, I think that that's also very important is the question is, uh, I guess like any question posed to me about GMing is, what do your players seem to want? Uh, do they want to uh, be deceived? There's certainly a lot of people who are upset at uh, any appearance of deception or theatricality or lack of transparency in uh, gaming. There are people who object, for example, in HeroQuest, it proposes that uh, if there's a situation where you cannot imagine a interesting result from failure, you still ask them to roll, or you roll secretly for them, but the roll is there just for a theatrical reason to create the idea of there having been suspense when there w wasn't really. And I guess there's sort of a, a an eschatological question of is that fudging a die roll or is that uh, merely maintaining a uh, sense of uh, false suspense that the players do not know to be false. And there's the question of things like in uh, the various gumshoe games where if you still want them to get over the fence to get into the compound and they fail their athletics test to climb the fence, they climb the fence anyway, but now they've, you know, cut themselves on the barbed wire and they're bleeding, which is nine times out of ten an unsavory thing to have happen to you in virtually any gumshoe game. Uh, yes, you do not want to be uh, trailing uh, blood anywhere. But that's an example of uh, you're fixing the situation so that you do not need to fudge, so mm -hmm. that you've spotted a, a, a possible choke point in the narrative and you've avoided it by there's still a consequence of success and failure. It's just that the consequence of failure is 
not that the narrative stops. And that, you know, gets us back into the whole question of, you know, investigative roles and having to roll to get uh, crucial bits of information that move you forward in, into the narrative, which I, I think is sort of a uh, related but uh, separate issue. So, so I guess really the answer comes down to, uh, can you get away with it? Uh, is it uh, worth uh, getting away with it? And will your players uh, blissfully thank you for having forever fooled them about your fudging? And uh, I think in a lot of uh, instances that you are uh, cheating them uh, by fudging the dice. And uh, if you're at a point where you're asking yourself if you've fudged, you've sort of already made the error that you're trying to yank your narrative irons out of the fire because you've set things up uh, in a way where the consequences of failure are uh, too stark for everyone. In, 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 in a lot of times, in later Call of Cthulhu games, for example, I would have a principle where there would be the moment where they would start doing something, you know, that could very easily, that their characters should know could lead to their horrible death and dismemberment. And I would generally signal that to them either with, uh, are you sure, which is uh, something that has become semi-legendary in my game groups, uh, as the signal that things are really going to start being horrible, or some other sort of in-game signal, you know, a premonition, a, a, a you know, a, just a narration of you, you know, your, you know, your your military experience tells you that you're not sure you're going to make it out of this alive if you keep going down this corridor type information. Right, and we mentioned that before, and that's a great technique because that allows you to turn the are you sure, which is sort of more of a, you're failing, dip noses, you might mm -hmm. want to turn around. And that turns that feeling around into a feeling of victory and being smart in that, uh, you know, your great experience in the field tells you that it's time to bug out. And so that it then becomes, instead of the uh, about the players having bitten off more than they can chew, it's about being that particular character being smart enough to know that it's time to switch gears into an uh, exfiltration. Right. It's basically it's like um, uh, you know, you know, Boromir's on the on the ridge against the orcs, and you say to Boromir's player, "There's a lot of orcs coming up." And he knows maybe that this is the point where, even if you're a narrativist GM, that the narrative is totally going to support him dying messily. And then it, it, uh, the fudging will, you know, if the fudging had been going on, it won't be going on. Right. And so I think in the end, the question is, is more about uh, can you frame the stakes so that you uh, never or very rarely have to fudge? Because by thinking about the, the stakes in that way, it will uh, lead you to more interesting, sharply defined uh, situations, which uh, is a benefit that actually has very little to do with the whole uh, uh, trust or theatricality issues of whether you fudge die result or not. And, and, dri and drives the, the creation of a more interesting game as well, right? It, it stops being about meta questions of rules and starts being, you know, even if you never fudge, even if you're, you're, uh, you're not uh, a, a narrativist uh, GM, you know, if you think about, you know, your your dungeon design, your, you know, these four rooms will be less dangerous, and then this fifth room is going to be super dangerous. You've, you're telling a story with your room design. Right, and then the question then becomes, how do you make that story apparent to the players so that mm -hmm. what uh, clues do you give them that this is the super dangerous room? Uh, how do you thread them together? Maybe there's something that you can get in one of the less dangerous rooms, if you're smart, that makes the super dangerous room uh, less super dangerous. Uh, and uh, again, I guess it comes down all to a matter of 
uh, player expectation because there certainly could be a group of people who want a light, picaresque, uh, butt kicking game where they, uh, or, you know, the classic, uh, you know, the early days thing of the Monty Hall campaign, which was uh, mm-hmm. much derided, but certainly there were groups who just love to constantly get stuff and constantly win. And, uh, that seems uh, odd given the way everybody's been been trained, but there's certainly been groups who've always enjoyed uh, constant victories. Certainly a lot of uh, video games kind of work on that model. And uh, uh, so it all be- comes down to a question of how forgiving do your players uh, really want you to be? How much how much truth and die rolling can they actually handle? Yeah, I mean, given that every game system out there I think, without exception, fudges how long it takes to recover from being stabbed in the leg. Um, you know, which is, the answer is months. Um, you know, we're already fudging. Right, as does most, you know, action cinema. Uh, but, but my point is that we're already fudging uh, in that sense. The rules are fudging. And so, you know, you, you uh, insisting that what you want is a, a game that really sets to and grapples with the greediness of the real world seems a little bit ridiculous if you're pretending to be a magic dwarf. Right, that the, the genres that we are emulating uh, tend not to be that brutal and unforgiving, unless you're trying to do the dwarven version of uh, Band of Brothers, and everybody is down with the fact that their characters are going to have a short uh, lifespan. Uh, even in that one, you know, the main protagonists survive, and the, it's the mm-hmm. extras who die. Uh, yeah. So the the question is, you know, how unforgiving do you want the environment to be and how uh, strict do you want the adherence to the rules that create that unforgiving environment to be? Yeah, is your game the first 20 minutes of Saving Private Ryan or the rest of Saving Private Ryan? Yes, there's a sharp reality shift in that, in that movie. <laughs> yeah, where they, they they find a time portal somewhere on Saint Lowe that sends them back to 1970s war movies. And uh, speaking of time tunnels, I uh, hear the uh, whirring in the distance of... Uh, uh, yet another and quite different hunt. But as with all things uh, temporal, uh, exactly locating that hut is a matter of uh, judgment and character, which means that instead of perhaps the expected chronal disturbance, we have found ourselves in a remarkably uh, tastefully appointed and well set up and uh, ventilated and sunny politics hut, which means that it can't be about Chicago politics. It must be about uh, the great city of Toronto. Robin, I believe that your city has just felt very bad at being a Great Lakes metropolis that is uh, relatively well run and is uh, trying to uh, uh, just like a you know the, the the nice girl in a in a teen movie is trying to dress in a slutty skirt and get accepted by the Detroits and Clevelands and Chicago's of the world what have you guys been up to there in your darling little way well I have to say this this story is uh, is the uh, perhaps the reverse version of Greece where uh, Sandy goes from uh, momentarily uh, going loose and going crazy and then returning to the 
starched uh, buttoned propriety because of their, of course this is a saga of the city of Toronto, a saga that went across the world, a saga that I'm calling the assassination of his own mayoralty by the lunkhead Rob Ford. So uh, we've had a series of comic errors uh, since uh, uh, Rob Ford has become uh, mayor of Toronto a couple of uh, years ago, uh, culminating uh, in a way that uh, caused him to trend on Twitter worldwide because it's such a delicious story uh, with Rob Ford's uh, ejection from office after a judicial uh, conflict of interest uh, review. First, though, a little uh, context. If you uh, Google image uh, Rob Ford, you will find a, perhaps even a stock comic figure. Uh, it is very tempting, in fact, to uh, ding Rob Ford for his uh, physical appearance, but that's lazy because there's so much other material. But he is a uh, a large, florid-faced uh, uh, man who has uh, a somewhat not quite so large, uh, florid-faced uh, brother Doug, who's also a, a counselor and his partner in uh, municipal uh, uh, malpractice. And uh, he swept into office uh, a couple of years ago as the representative of the uh, suburbs and exurbs against the uh, lefty transit-loving uh, desires of hip inner-city core of Toronto, which is a very livable downtown area in which I choose to live. Um, and so basically, his the tenets of his campaign were to make it uh, easier to be a driver in a city where driving is increasingly fraught because our uh, infrastructure dates back to the, the late 60s, basically, and there just isn't enough room on the road for the number of cars that want to be on the road. And more importantly, to end the so-called gravy train. So he's a sort of a populist uh, righty guy who is proposing that he could slash tons of fat out of the uh, city of Toronto budget uh, without cutting services. And of course, you know that whenever you hear uh, someone say either of those uh, two things, either that we can radically uh, cut the budget without cutting uh, services, or conversely, that we can uh, ramp up services without increasing taxes, you should know that you're being sold a pig in a poke. But unfortunately, uh, the voters in uh, Toronto's 905 region, the outlying uh, suburbs, cottoned on to his uh, uh, theatricality and his uh, bravado and his bluster and thought that he would be a new broom who would sweep into office and and cut out all of this wasteful spending that he claimed was at the center of uh, tr the city of Toronto experience. Now, of course, once in office, it proved that there it was not, in fact, that much uh, fat and that uh, what he meant by wasteful spending was like library branches and uh, community centers and uh, pools that are open in the uh, summertime to cool people down and uh, uh, all sorts of other uh, important services. And that kind of turned people against him. The other problem is that he was running as if he was a powerful chief executive in a system where the mayor is really just a kind of a, an uber counselor and needs to bring other counselors on board. And, and as soon as the uh, myth of his uh, invulnerability was uh, punctured when people uh, showed up to protest his uh, proposed cuts, the other sort of right or centrist uh, counselors kind of pulled away from him. And since then, he's been unable to get anything done and has mostly been uh, uh, absent 
uh, from the mayoral chambers in order to pursue his real love, which is coaching a high school football team. Now, a couple of footnotes uh, for non-Canadians among you. Uh, for Americans, uh, note that high school football is no big deal in Canada. It's just another sport. And for uh, the rest of the world, by football, I mean the North American-style football with the helmets and the... Uh, a weird-shaped ball, not a footy. So, so Canada winds up getting it wrong twice by by doing uh, not association football and then not caring about it. Uh, well, I, I think not caring about that fo form of football is uh, is the correct choice, and and also just not caring about sports in general. Um, but also, there you know people do actually play soccer here, and uh, but you cannot imagine a man of Rob's Ford's persuasion being interested in that uh, global multicultural uh, sport. Um, so at any rate, years ago, when he was a counselor, he uh, sent out uh, fundraising notices for his, uh, uh, and you'll have to listen for the air quotes here, uh, charitable venture, uh, which is basically a foundation that funds his efforts to coach his high school football team that he coaches, and has always been sort of a borderline scam that kind of enhances his resume, but is, you know, not... Uh, the most exciting charity on, on the books by any means. And so he sent out uh, fundraising requests on official uh, City of Toronto letterhead as if he was making this request as a counselor, which is a conflict of interest. It's a no-no. You're not supposed to do that. And he was told on repeated times by the uh, city lawyer in charge of alerting counselors to possible conflicts of interest not to do that. Uh, and so finally it got before uh, council, uh, and council was going to vote on the question of whether Ford would have to refund the money raised uh, by this means uh, to the donors out of his own pocket. And we're talking about $3,150. <laughs> and so um, now, so Rob Ford uh, really did not get kicked out for corruption. He got kicked out for stupidity because he could at any time have obeyed the city rules. And in fact, he could have even, uh, when this came before council, not gotten up and voted that he should get to keep the $3,150. If he had just sat in his chair and not said anything and not voted, all of his cronies on the council would have gone ahead and voted for him not to have to pay that money. So this, in fact, is a completely gratuitous act of uh, political hubris and obliviousness that has characterized his entire tenure as mayor. And once he had gotten up and voted on an issue that he had direct fiduciary advantage from, i.e., does he get to keep the 3000 bucks or not, he sealed his fate because the... Because that, that actually is a conflict of interest. That then. actually is a conflict of interest. It was not a mysterious question as to whether there was a conflict of interest. It was uh, took place in, as an official uh, council chamber vote. And the uh, rules... Uh, governing conflicts of interest for uh, mayors in Ontario are quite strict and quite cut and dried, and they don't offer uh, latitude to the judge to go, oh, well, it's a picky amount of money, or this is a, just a stupid, ridiculous thing to even be thinking about. You, The, the law gave the judge uh, one option, which was to remove him from office, uh, prevent him from running again for the remainder of the term. Uh, so if there's a by-election, uh, as far as we can tell, it's a little fuzzy. He's not allowed to to run immediately to try and get back into office. And so um, 
after repeated warnings, you know, in role-playing game terms, the GM on multiple occasions said to Rob Ford, are you sure you want to do this? Are you sure? Yeah. And Rob said, yes, I'm sure. It's in my character to do this. I wouldn't back down. So, 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 so actually, that that raises the question that I I had as this hilarious uh, attempt uh, by Canada to have urban corruption is uh, being recounted to me, and um, the first one is, what's the what? I mean, is the deal that when he was, I guess he was a city councilor or whatever before that. What did he have some electoral? politics role before that before being mayor was he like a did he did he run a really great donut stand and everyone just swept him into office on that basis he was a a sort of a gadfly character he was the uh you know i think a lot of municipal councils have the uh the guy who won't spend money on his office and and Mm -hmm. tax everybody else he was sort of the uh the dumber tom coburn of uh, okay of uh, Toronto politics. And and by the way, if you want actual real municipal corruption in Canada, go thee to Quebec, where there's been a whole rash of mayors who are being turfed out for shady uh, dealings involving uh, the notoriously corrupt and mobbed up uh, Quebec uh, construction industry. No, I'm, I'm sure that uh, Quebec is doing their damnedest to be the Louisiana of the North and um, uh, live up to having you know been founded by uh, the French in the same way that... Uh, good old uh, Louisiana does down here. Uh, note everyone, th- that's Ken saying that. <laughs> yes. Uh, of course, the world's uh, attention on Quebec is riveted by your great maple syrup heist. Uh, yes, the, the maple syrup heist. Which, as far as I can tell, has paralyzed Canada uh, at possibly the worst time ever, given that it's it's the holidays. Yes, yeah, so we want to talk about truly serious crimes that uh, yeah. cut at the root of national identity. It would be the great uh, maple syrup heist. But but uh, Toronto is, uh, to, to sort of bring it back around here, so my, my my question is that given that uh, Rob Ford apparently sort of wanted to be a, a Huey Long type character, but did he just literally have none of the Huey Long type skills and he was just suddenly promoted ahead of his ability to do that? Sort of a, a, a right wing Obama narrative type thing? Right. He thought of himself as the, the populist hero, but he's really Chris Farley's character, the guy who lives in the van down by the river. Okay. Um, and he's just a, a bullheaded dude who uh, thought he could uh, bull in a china shop his way through uh, government. And the thing is, this story is not even, it maybe doesn't even crack the top 10 of uh, entertaining Rob Ford uh, scandals and anecdotes. It's just the one that happened to get him uh, kicked out. Like, like, like how they got uh, Capone on tax evasion type thing. Uh, exactly so. Uh, so, for example, uh, there was the uh, Boardwalk Cafe libel suit. He's now facing a libel action for getting on the radio and uh, during the uh, campaign and saying that this uh, restaurant owner who got a municipal franchise to uh, sort of control uh, food sales on a, a popular uh, beach area, uh, instead of saying, there's something kind of fishy about the no bid deal. He said, "This guy's corrupt." Ah, and uh, I, I guess Canada has one of those British libel things where it's uh, really, really easy to um, uh, get hammered and uh, hard to uh, defend against. We we don't actually, but the problem is, is that if you say, if you just come out and say that someone is corrupt, you have to be able to prove it. And the best he could do is, well, this seems kind of fishy. And so, had he stopped at this seems kind of fishy, there would be no libel suit. Uh, right. And he's also uh, been under a campaign auditing, uh, just as one might expect 
from someone who uh, fundraises for his personal charity uh, using his official uh, counselor stationery. Uh, there's questions about his campaign finances. Uh, but uh, many of the Rob Ford scandals revolve around the theme of transit because, of course, uh, his whole plan is to uh, kill bike lanes and to uh, prevent surface uh, level uh, uh, light rail transit from being added to the rail system. Basically, anything that makes it more difficult to drive in the city, he is opposed mm -hmm. to. He claims to be supportive of subway construction, uh, which would be great, except that he has no proposals to fund the much, much more expensive uh, subway construction. And that's basically a dodge where he just says people want subways, but he has no means to deliver subways. Well, I mean, again, but that's that's just standard politics. I mean, if there were if if um, uh, poor President Obama had to fund everything he's in favor of, he'd never get anything done. Right. But that lays the the uh, karmic groundwork for a, a series of uh, incidents. Uh, there was one time uh, while driving when he uh, flipped the bird to a six-year-old child. Uh, <laughs> That's just, that, you know, we, we've all met six-year-olds who deserve that kind of treatment. Well, I, I, I don't know. Perhaps uh, it, it just lacked the panache of the classic Pierre Trudeau uh, flipping the bird to people who are throwing rocks at his uh, train when his kids were on board. Right. Um, he uh, was uh, busted for uh, uh, reading while driving. <laughs> well, see, there you go. He's a reader. Uh, yes, he's a very busy man. That was his uh, excuse there. Um, he uh, got in an incident where he uh, uh, Toronto has uh, streetcars on many of its downtown streets, and uh, you are not allowed to drive past an open uh, streetcar door on the uh, for the simple reason that that might entail running over someone who's stepping out of a streetcar, and he. Uh, was caught driving uh, past the streetcar doors, which is the number one no-no that someone who drives in Toronto ought to be familiar with. And uh, unfortunately, the streetcar driver got out of the vehicle to remonstrate with him and therefore was also uh, uh, disciplined. There was the tale of the great football team bus diversion, which I think would require another 15 minutes to fully explain. But basically, there was a point where his uh, beloved football team against so this combines his football and his transit themes was uh, in uh, the rain after a game that had gone awry when the rival coach uh, threw a tantrum and a number of different uh, uh, buses were pulled off the road and commuters were kicked off the buses into the rain in order that these buses be diverted to the school to whisk his uh, football uh, uh, team players out of uh, non-existent apparent danger um, the uh, best ones, though, uh, revolve around his uh, territorial incidents at his house, which there have been a couple of domestic disputes reported. Now, are we, are we talking like uh, what, what uh, you know, sort of cops-level domestic, where people are getting slapped around, or is it just raised voices and, and idle gunplay type stuff? Uh, well, there's certainly no gunplay, um, okay. but there, it's, it's not entirely clear uh, whether things have risen above the uh, drinking and shouting uh, phase, but it is a, a raucous household from all that we can uh, determine. Well, raucous is different from abusive, right? right? I mean, raucous, it could just be that he's Irish, and then, then drinking and shouting is like Tuesday, right? right? It's, it's certainly, there's there's been no credible accusation of, of him actually being physically abusive of uh, his wife. And his brother, Doug, went on their radio show to explain that it's just because she's a Polak. <laughs> well, <laughs> that, that would certainly explain the drinking, although I don't think that they're traditionally as raucous as we are. Uh, right. But again, perhaps a, a 
a poor choice of words being a family trait there. Um, yeah. And so here's some more Canadian footnoteure for you. There is a, a show in Canada called uh, This Hour Has 22 Minutes that was funny in the 1980s and is still on the air. And uh, <laughs> Canada's Saturday Night Live. It's actually Canada's Daily Show before there was a daily okay. show. And uh, there's a character on it played by uh, the quite talented comedic performer uh, uh, Mary Walsh called uh, Marg Delahunty Warrior Princess. And she's basically got kind of a Xena outfit. And she's famous for doing interventions where she shows up uh, during political events and uh, Canada's political leaders have to show their uh, comedy adroitness by and uh, sense of humor and regular guyness by playing along as straight man to whatever it is that she's doing. Mm -hmm. And you can sort of uh, judge our different politicians we've had over the years by the equanimity with which they appear to be amused uh, by this whole shtick. But uh, Rob Ford has gone down in history as the least amused uh, uh, politician to suffer the Mar Delahunty warrior princess treatment when she showed up at his home in full costume and, and regalia and with a TV crew. Uh, he was so threatened by her appearance, he thought she was going to physically attack him, that she was some sort of hostile force. He called the police. <laughs> Um, well, <laughs> and uh, and later uh, called nine one one to swear at them for not uh, responding quickly enough to rescue him from this uh, danger. from his barbarian princess uh, besiegers. Yes. Well, that's what I, I I have to say. You know, up until up until this anecdote, I was thinking. You know, regardless of what your your little Rob Ford story is, topping it out of Chicago is is nothing. But we do not actually have any of our local journalistic personalities dress up as Xena and uh, and pester uh, uh, local officials. So I think Canada has to win some sort of. Of, uh, of of special arts and drama prize for that one. We do have a tradition of uh, political irreverence. Uh, in fact, back when they were uh, still funny, the uh, original cast of This Hour Has 22 Minutes was uh, part of the official CBC election coverage during the famous election where the conservatives were reduced from a, a majority to two seats Yes, and uh, provided uh, some of the best moments of that coverage. So again, if you could imagine... Uh, you know, the CBS Evening News also having Colbert on it. That would be the uh, uh, sort of level of uh, political irreverence that we are, operate under up here. And there was another incident where a reporter uh, showed up, uh, not even on Ford's property, but around Ford's property to uh, look at a parcel of adjacent city-owned land that Ford was trying to quietly purchase. And again, he barreled out of the house and uh, uh, loomed over him uh, silverback fashion and uh, did his best to uh, physically intimidate this unprepossessing Toronto Star reporter. So that's a, a selection of Rob Ford incidents, which sort of explain the prevailing schadenfreude with which uh, at least Ford's opponents in the downtown area have received his ejection uh, from office, his political self-immolation, if you will. Now, when you bring up the downtown area, though, you sort of tiptoe up to the elephant in the room, which is that, from what I understand, uh, the provincial government of Ontario forced all the suburbs, all the Rob Ford country, to merge with Toronto and sort of created this situation where uh, your, your um, uh, urban esthetes with your uh, round glasses and your... Um, uh, Globe and Mail, or whatever the the Guardian version in Canada is. Uh, it, it would be your Now magazine. Your Globe and Mail your is now far magazine. from a uh, 
uh, effete hipsterism are, are basically going to be uh, ruled by suburban goons uh, forever. And isn't that it? That was the plan. That was absolutely the plan that the uh, uh, conservative provincial government of the day uh, decided to uh, screw over Toronto by this uh, forced amalgamation, and they uh, tried to create a political unit that would uh, swing to the right by uh, clumping all of the uh, suburbs and homeowners and, and drivers uh, onto it. Uh, but previous to that, the, the mayor under amalgamation was a guy named David Miller, who was uh, left of center. And uh, one assumes also that the uh, the next mayor, uh, the, all of the leading candidates are uh, left or, or center uh, people, because even the, the folks in the suburbs voting for Ford were doing under the false argument that he wasn't actually going to cut any services. Um, now, one might have asked voters to apply a modicum of skepticism to that claim, but uh, because Ford was uh, colorful and the uh, guy who was next in line to be the lefty candidate was anything but, uh, that he was sort of a uh, pleasant gray non-entity. You think in Canada that's like the that's the winning charm, right? Uh, well, no. Uh, Canada actually kind of likes uh, panache in its uh, leaders, as anyone does, and uh, being a... a technocrat or being professorial, uh, even here is, is not quite enough. You have to have a huh. regular guy touch or a, or a cape or a large or a cape or a larger than life quality like, uh, Pierre Trudeau did, or his son, Justin Trudeau, who may well become the next federal liberal leader, uh, certainly has in spades. So, uh, we, we may want technocratic outcomes, but we, uh, do want, uh, some sort of level of, um, basic humanity of whatever sort in our leaders. Yeah. Well, just as uh, I guess sort of as a as a as a code of this, when I was reading the the the, the bill of indictments against Rob Ford and all of his various uh, you know, hilarious antics, it occurred to me that Mayor Daley illegally destroyed an airport and was reelected. And so, you know, as as delightful as I find, you know, your your carryings on there and as happy as I am that you're happy that uh, your a loutish buffoon is now, you know, forced to uh, eat some sort of public crow. I have to say that um, you're 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 not even you're not even bringing it, uh, uh, and you need to try harder next time. Well, I, I cannot take the pride in civic corruption that Chicagoans do in theirs. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and I guess on on that note, uh, now that everyone knows way more than they want to about Toronto municipal politics, uh, we can exit the uh, disastrous Rob Ford edition of the Politics Hub. And this brings us uh, to a much beloved segment here on the show, and that's uh, Ken's Time Machine. And... uh, uh, Ken, you've uh, received an assignment from uh, Time Incorporated that, from what I understand, you may have some uh, cavil over. Uh, What they want you to do is to go back in time and investigate to find out who Jack the Ripper was. But they, uh, new safety procedures prevent you from doing so merely by uh, showing up at the scene and uh, possibly getting uh, your uh, neck slit open. Uh, They uh, are parsimonious in that regard, and they uh, regard you as an important uh, agent, and they do not want you to risk your physical safety uh, 
or even the physical safety of some hired factotum uh, to actually just go and intervene at the scene. So if you are going to arrive in London at 1888 and Time Incorporated uh, does not want you to uh, go actually to the crime scenes at the times of the murders, uh, how do you go about determining which of the many possible suspects of Jack the Ripper was actually Jack the Ripper? Well, the, uh, the the time incorporated, and not for the first time, is is unreasonably tying my hands with this assignment. Uh, Jack the Ripper, as anyone with a modicum of understanding of uh, serial killers knows, was almost certainly kind of a wuss, and was you know only a threat to middle-aged alcoholic women and not to anyone, even in the kind of mediocre shape that I am, much less the sort of burly Irish navvies who I could hire with a few sovereigns and the promise of a pint down at the pub after the thrashing. So I think that uh, Time Incorporated are being a bunch of babies here. Well, th th this is an exploratory mission, right? But later they may ask you to go and, and hire a navvy and, and directly intervene. But before they do that, they want to find out who it is who uh, might have been Jack the Ripper in order to plot out the possible time rippers, uh, ripples, as it were, ripples. of your uh, deciding not to do so. So with your hands thus tied uh, mm -hmm. by their bureaucratic, uh, by-the-book ways, how do you, uh, Ken Height, maverick time detective, uh, go about uh, figuring out who Jack the Ripper was? Well, once again, I have uh, advantages that uh, the Inspector Aberline and Inspector McNaughton on the scene did not. Namely, I know where all the crimes are going to be committed. I know who all the victims are. And I have the whole panoply of 21st century and beyond surveillance technology. So, uh, you know, a battery pack, an infrared camera, a rented room above Buck's Row, and I've pretty much got Jack the Ripper dead to rights. My theory about Jack the Ripper, which is, of course, the right one, is that Jack the Ripper is no one anyone has ever heard of. He, the, the eyewitness descriptions, uh, except for the last one by George uh, Hutchinson, don't make him anything like any of the figures that he, there's no big handlebar mustache. There's no, uh, you know, uh, uh, opera cloak or top hat. He wears either a soft hat or a peaked hat like a deer stalker. He's of medium height, somewhere in the neighborhood of 5'5", five, five, perhaps 5'6". Five, uh, he is either uh, sort of very lower middle class, sort of a clerk. He, he's not dressed super well. He's, he wears, um, at, at, according to one witness, a cloth cap which Im or a sailor-like cap, which implies that he might even be sort of a um, skilled workman. Uh, like someone, uh, like people thought at the time, he might have been a butcher. He might have been someone with some sort of of knife-based skill training. But I think that the best explanation for Jack the Ripper has always been Eddie Campbell's uh, explanation. Eddie Campbell being the artist of the phenomenal Jack the Ripper comic from Hell by Alan Moore, which is Jack the Ripper was the guy holding the bread knife when they left the door unlocked, and that and that is who it is going to be. There is not going to be uh, uh, the capacity to track down uh, this serial killer uh, by any means short of the way that we track down serial killers today, which is, you know, comprehensive fiber evidence, comprehensive uh, canvassing of the scenes and use of DNA technology. And in the Jack the Ripper case in 1888, the police really did, you know, as much as you could ask them to do, given their, their level of of understanding of, of the science of policing. Uh, they, they, they flooded the zone with, with constables. They, you know, uh, you know, took 
scores of eyewitness statements. They interviewed everybody. They arrested all manner of people who vaguely resembled suspects, some of whom may actually have been Jack the Ripper, and who therefore scared straight, just stopped killing anybody until they fell into the Thames or were hit by an omnibus or whatever else it was happened to them. Uh, the the part where, you know, I show up and I, I Sherlock Holmes identify, uh, you know, the grape stem left on Annie Chapman is just not going to happen because the Scotland Yard is not incompetent. They're, they're doing that just as well. And the, the real killer is someone that no one's ever heard of. And short of taking his photograph, uh, which I can do with my uh, 21st century technology and my own uh, thumb-fingered skills, uh, there's not an awful lot that I can do that Aberline and McNaughton aren't doing. The criticism of the police is uh, understandable, given the, the nature of the crimes, but it was politically driven then, and it is to an extent sort of politically driven now uh, in the sort of chattering class uh, way that uh, people who write about things never having done them uh, engage in. So you would feel no particular need to go and rule out the various suspects who've been named over the years or go and interview them or determine what they're up to? I or... mean, it, it, it might be fun to sort of, you know, go pester Montague Druitt, but he's he's just a sad guy who's a, a closeted homosexual in 1888, and he's got a bad life when he kills himself in 1890. Uh, there's I don't think there's a mystery in the world why he does it. He's, you know, uh, going to probably be named uh, by one of his uh, students who, who uh, he came on to, and he's going to lose his, his his mediocre job, and it it, it, it he doesn't fit the, ca- the 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 sort of the psychological case. The the person killing uh, uh, Whitechapel prostitutes is is not a gay schoolmaster. The person killing Whitechapel prostitutes is someone who lives in Whitechapel or at least att- goes to Whitechapel prostitutes. Uh, regularly, that's not going to be Montague Druitt. Uh, if I'm going to pick one of the sort of um, marquee suspects, it's going to be J.K. Stephen, uh, the uh, uh, horribly uh, misogynist poet who was uh, who has been named by a number of people. And the reason that I pick him is not because I believe that he's a, a plausible case, but because it's so fun to accuse. Um, uh, relatives of Virginia Woolf of being Jack the Ripper. And, and so of the various uh, suspects who've been named over the years, uh, who would you characterize as the most uh, ridiculous Jack the Ripper conspiracy or the, uh, the, the most outre of them? Well, obviously the best of them is the one that says that Queen Victoria herself uh, was dressing up as a, uh, as a killer, having been unhinged by her... Uh, by her uh, the loss of Prince Albert and took to the streets uh, massacring people. Uh, slightly more plausibly than that, the ones that say that um, uh, Prince uh, Albert Victor, uh, the heir, uh, uh, the, the heir presumptive, was the was the Ripper. Um, that one at least has anti-royal sentiment behind it, which I can sort of get behind. Um, he uh, probably would have hired it out to be done, though, if it were if he were interested in, in killing a lot of prostitutes, he's he's a weaselly little inbred uh, royal. So obviously he's got the psychological damage. But um, I, I don't think that you know he'd have to get a you know he, you know you think Time Incorporated is 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 nervous about getting blood on things. Uh, royals are not going to be wanting to do that either. I'm, I'm very fond of the theory that um, uh, Lewis Carroll was Jack the Ripper. That he uh, because of his unorthodox, putative interest in uh, underage girls is also somehow going around slaughtering uh, middle-aged whores in London, and that he then concealed uh, his activities 
in his uh, uh, Alice's uh, Adventures in Wonderland and uh, things like that. This is the sort of nonsensical anagram logic that causes people to say that Bacon wrote Shakespeare, which uh, means that you can treat it not as a legitimate theory and get in a dudgeon of, uh, on the behalf of Lewis Carroll, but as sort of a bizarre parlor game played, played by the mentally feeble and therefore fun on all accounts. So when a uh, new uh, Ripper theory comes along, what are your criteria for uh, determining how nonsensical it is? Well, I mean, the first criterion is, has anyone ever heard of the guy? Because like I say, the, the, the Ripper killer, I mean, if you look at all the serial killers in American history, none of them have been anyone anyone has ever heard of outside, oh, and they were the BTK killer in Omaha or whatever, right? There's, it, there, it's not that, um, uh, um, you know, Eddie Vedder makes a career out of going around killing people in Seattle. Being famous would seem to be a, a detriment to one's serial killing activities. Yeah, or even remotely well-known. There was a, a, a case a while back um, uh, where someone decided that James Maybrick uh, was uh, Jack the Ripper, and no one's heard of James Maybrick now, but at the time, he was one of the uh, uh, he was the victim in one of the great murder trials of the century in the 19th century. He was uh, poisoned uh, with arsenic, and his wife uh, Florence was accused of poisoning him. And it was a big cause celeb, and there was a lot of documentation about it. And I suspect that whoever uh, nonsensed up the James Maybrick diary uh, decided that it would be awesome if, in addition to being the possible uh, accidental suicide by uh, arsenic, he was also Jack the Ripper because he did, you know like the the, the the whores, and he was obviously as bent as anyone who has uh, got a lot of arsenic in them is. So it sort of has a surface plausibility in that case, but again, it just beggars the imagination that uh, Jack the Ripper would also be the victim of a hugely uh, impressive trial. It'd be like saying that uh, you know Nicole Brown Williamson was the Zodiac killer just because O.J. Simpson stabbed her. And, uh, of course, there are also a couple of theories that uh, take the American exceptionalism approach and argue that yes. uh, Jack the Ripper either was an American or emigrated to America to continue his uh, slashings and knifings. And I gather you give them little credit either. Uh, I, I'm, fond of the, I'm fonder of the ones that say that Jack the Ripper moved to America and changed his M.O. and killed a bunch of people here just because it has that nice occult feeling to it. There's a great book that I picked up. Uh, at foils earlier to sort of call back to an earlier bookshelf hut called, um, I believe it's called The Fox and the Flies, but it's about a guy named uh, Joe Liss, who was a sort of white slaver and criminal and problem guy. And he had a fairly extensive police record, and the book is just a fascinating piece of social and criminological history. But of course, because he was alive in 1888 and was a criminal, uh, you can't leave well enough alone. So they also had to say that he was the, the Ripper killer. And uh, he, he provably, he was not even provably in London, much less have anything else, but there was a guy named Joe Isaacs that was arrested uh, uh, because he fit Hutchinson's description uh, somewhat, and so therefore, the theory is that Joe Liss, alias Joe Silver, was actually Joe Isaacs, and and I like that one because I, I just like the notion that Jack the Ripper is sort of, you know, he, he's, he's moving on, he's done in London, and he's going to go on, uh, the, the ones that tie him to the serving girl annihilator, the as, as yet unidentified uh, killer of servant girls in Austin, Texas, in I think the 1870s, um, 
that he then moved to be Jack the Ripper, or that H.H. H. Holmes uh, was Jack the Ripper and then came back to Chicago to sort of um, uh, finish things up in his awesome murder castle. I, I sort of like those better, uh, but I like those aesthetically, not obviously as logical uh, cases, because, again, you just don't see that kind of behavior. I mean, Ted Bundy aside, you don't see a lot of sort of uh, itinerant serial killers. Serial killers tend to one of the, the advantages that they have is that they know their home territory really, really well. They know where to bury bodies. They know what parts of the of the city the cops don't come in. And you, it's hard to pick up that kind of knowledge uh, when you go to a new city. Although um, the most recent horrible serial killer case, I want to say Israel Keys, uh, was a guy who uh, was very intentional about going from location to location uh, and he would uh, go considerable distances across North America and was completely opportunistic and had no clear MO in that he would just go to very, very deserted places and wait for someone to show up. And then he would attack and kill them. And it, there was no connection seen before the murders, uh, between the murders until he was finally caught and started confessing to some of them. And uh, uh, there are possibly others as well. So the uh, you know, the frightening thing is that if you are very calculated and uh, you are a serial killer, you can look at the past and look at uh, what tends to get people with your profile caught and then intentionally set out not to do that. Yeah, um, and Ted Bundy is the same sort of guy. I'm not saying it never happens. But again, the Ripper kills uh, five people in London, possibly more, depending on where you fall on the um, uh, Martha Tabram case. And... Uh, that is, uh, that's not a Bundy pattern. That's a, that's a, um, a, a BTK guy pattern. That's definitely, uh, a sort of a at, at home in a, in a quote unquote hunting ground type attitude. And occasionally you get sort of a compromise. The Green River Killer, I think, killed people in a, in a number of, uh, fairly widely spaced hunting grounds. Or, um, you would get, uh, I think there was an interstate, uh, if I forget which interstate it is, but it's like the I-5 killer who killed a number of people along a corridor somewhere in the Pacific uh, Northwest that uh, is a, sort of a compromise between a, a an itinerant uh, killer like Keys or Bundy or a, or a, or a homebody uh, uh, predator like uh, Gacy was. So, I mean, I'm not saying it never happens. I'm just saying that if I'm looking at Jack the Ripper suspects seriously in the sense of, you know, who who could it be? Um, I think that, you know, either it's one of the two uh, guys that the police thought it was, uh, Kosminski or Ostrog, uh, the other guy, um, who are both identified as possible killers by uh, McNaughton, one of the um, sort of uh, senior uh, inspectors on the site. And that's just, I suspect, because I believe police intuition is at least somewhat valuable. But obviously, neither of them thought that they were super worth running in, or else they would have run them in and, you know, tried them for it. So their intuition said, I think he might have been the killer, but they also were pretty sure they couldn't prove it. Uh, there's another guy that's in, I think, one of Aberline's um, uh, records. It's a guy named George Chapman. He's another possibility, but the, the reason we know who George Chapman is is because he was also a serial poisoner of his wives. And you know, real serial killers, they don't vary their M.O. that much. And they certainly didn't do it in the more naive time of the 19th century before, uh, as you suggest, people could research serial killers on the Internet in the same way that they research, you know, 
um, uh, accounting uh, majors because that's what they want to be. Right. There's no counter reaction to profiling in 1888. Yeah. Although again, the 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 profile that was uh, prepared by the um, uh, psychologist at Scotland Yard in the 1880s or 1890s, not that much different from the one pre uh, prepared by the FBI uh, uh, alleged super profiler John Douglas. It's it you know you take a little of the jargon away and it's the same basic theory, which makes me believe that uh, the art of profiling is not as super advanced as people think it is. So do you have an intuition of what stopped Jack the Ripper's uh, crime spear, other than possibly being speared away by uh, someone in a time machine? Well, there is the, the, the uh, if, if it were a time machine, then I, I deserve to be you know sent on a punishment detail on my next mission because I'd let it get five people in before we grabbed him, unless that was my, you know, my um, uh, by the book uh, supervisor who just doesn't understand how things are out here on the on the sharp end of the of the time machine. Um, but uh, the my suspicion is that what happened to him was either uh, syphilis was super uh, epidemic in Victorian London. I mean, people had it in all walks of life, and certainly people who had regular contact with prostitutes had it, and syphilis. Yeah, there was its... a thin sludge of it along the uh, sidewalks. Yes, I, I think it was actually in the ice cream in some uh, stores. And you would, uh, and, and people who have syphilis, uh, what happens to them is uh, certainly in the 1890s, before you have sulfa drugs and stuff, they their brain turns to mush and they go crazy. And if they are um, uh, sort of uh, rich and well connected, they are sort of shut up by their family in a sanitarium, or they're put in the bedroom and told not to make trouble when the kids come over for Thanksgiving, or not Thanksgiving, Victoria's birthday, or whatever they have over there. Um, a bank holiday. A bank holiday, yes. But if you are what who the Ripper probably was, either very um, tenuous middle class or upper working class, what happens when you start getting crazy from syphilis is you just go crazy, and you're thrown out of your job, and you lose your apartment, and you starve to death or freeze to death on the street. Or you get taken into a public workhouse, and you're chained up somewhere making oakum or whatever it is they did in public workhouses. And either way, your free time to go uh, wandering around uh, London uh, prostitute hangouts is restricted. So my theory, if he didn't just get hit by a bus, which I think I like, uh, again, for the poetic reason that the Ripper should die in an obscure, unintentional, unimportant way. Um, I think that most likely you look at the kind of hatred that he had for prostitutes, the hatred that he had for women, combine that with the familiarity with prostitutes that he displays in his killings, he probably had syphilis. And which, what means is he probably had tertiary syphilis by the, you know, uh, you know, 1889, 1890 period. And before he could uh, get the uh, wherewithal to, to start up again next fall, he got tossed in a workhouse or froze to death in the street. Well, it's also good to imagine an ignominious end, although unfortunately that would be an ignominious end that a lot of people who weren't Jack the Ripper also faced. Yes. No, it, it certainly syphilis is, is no laughing matter. And um, while I am a firm a believer that one should stay well away from Victorian prostitutes for any purpose that does not involve charitable works of uplift and, uh, and communal reading, I think that um, uh, it seems like a, a bit of a harsh... Uh, uh, karmic punishment. Uh, well, in that case, it's it's probable that uh, Time Incorporated may uh, decide not to intervene in this case simply because they can't see any big historical ripples from a uh, completely obscure Jack the Ripper. But I'm sure that they will uh, process your report with all due diligence and uh, expense you adequately. All right. Well, as long as I can uh, pay for the round for the navvies, then we're all happy. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Drive Through RPG. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website, canandrobintalkaboutstuff.com, where you may nominate us to jointly rule as Lord Mayors of your hometown. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.